Turn to God's word this evening to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, we'll read the entire chapter and take note as we read through the chapter how it builds up and leads to the final doxology, which we'll consider for our text tonight, verses 33 through 36. Uh, Let's begin reading Romans 11, verse 1. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. Wot ye not what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone and they seek my life? But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then is it no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then is it no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David saith, Let their table be made a snare, and a trap, and a stumbling block, and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened, that they may not see, and bow down their back always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather, through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles, for to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. For I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office, if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be? but life from the dead. For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, wert grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches, But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, 
Because of unbelief they were broken off. And thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness. Otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel, Till the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief, even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. And now what follows, verses 33 through 36, will be the text this evening. In light of really the summary, all of chapter 11, now this final word of praise and doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Thus far we read God's holy and inspired word, the text being verses 33 through 36. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, what we have here at the end of Romans chapter 11 is a doxology of praise unto God. And what we have here is one of those deep and profound and moving passages of the word of God, especially as it's stated in verse 36, for of him and through him and to him are all things. This is one of those passages that 
makes you and I, that makes men quake and tremble as we stand before Jehovah God. This is one of those passages that puts man in his proper place before God and exalts Jehovah God, the sovereign one of heaven and of earth. This is a passage that speaks of the all-encompassing will and purpose of Jehovah God. Verse 36 speaks of all things. And that's what that means. All things without exception. All things in the history of the world. All things in the history of the church. And all the individual difficulties and struggles in your lives. Even those moments of sorrow and hardship. This is the confession of the child of God. All things are of him and through him and to him. And all things are included in that all-encompassing sovereign will and purpose of Jehovah God. The Apostle Paul, considering the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, now this does not leave him unmoved. He is compelled now by the Spirit, and and he he cannot contain himself, and he bursts forth in in this anthem of praise and adoration to God. Paul trembles and falls down and confesses, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And then that doxology of praise, especially the last verse, For of him and through him and to him are all things. The only conclusion is that God is deserving of all my glory, of all my praise, to whom be glory forever. Well, let's consider together this rich rich doxology of praise unto God in these final verses of chapter 11. We take as our theme, adoring the riches of God. Of God. Let's note first the infinite depth, secondly, the divine reason, and then finally, the profound praise, adoring the riches of God. Now, we ought to notice the context that compels this outcry of praise from the Apostle Paul. The question that governs all of Romans chapter 11 is the question that's stated right away there in verse 1. I say then, hath God cast away his people? Now we didn't read the chapter previous, but in Romans chapter 10, the apostle made note that the Jews, the physical descendants of Abraham, that they were entrusted with the gospel in the Old Testament. But they didn't believe the gospel. They didn't obey the gospel. And now the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles. And so now the question of Romans 11 verse 1, are we then to conclude that God has cast off his people? To put the question a different way, because the gospel now goes out to the Gentiles, Does that mean that God has abandoned his word to the Jews? Because the gospel goes out to the Gentiles, has God cast off 
his people? And the answer to that question is a resounding no. God forbid. And as proof that God hasn't cast off his people, even from among the Jews, Paul says in, in verse 1 of this chapter, For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. And the Apostle Paul is saying, God hasn't cast off his people from among the Jews. Look at me. I'm of the descendant of Abraham. I am an Israelite. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm living proof that God has not cast away his own. And now it might seem that God has cast off his people when one might take a, a cursory glance at Old Testament history so that in verses 2 through 4, the Apostle Paul brings up the prophet Elijah. Elijah was even of that mind for a little while until God set him straight that God perhaps just might have cast off his own uh, but then God says to Elijah, I have reserved to myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so the answer is God doesn't cast off his own. Even as in the Old Testament, so also now in the New Testament, there is that remnant according to the grace of election. And God keeps his own and preserves his own. And that's what Paul is underscoring here then in the rest of Romans chapter 11. He makes plain that the majority of the Jews in the Old Testament were like the natural branches of a tree. But the problem is that there were many of those natural branches who did not believe in Jehovah God. And God cut them off. And instead God grafts in new branches from among the Gentile nations. And beloved, that's a cause of humility for you and for me. That God does that, that he grafts in those wild branches because those wild branches are you and me. And that's a cause of humility so that in verse 21, for if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. So there's no boasting, no boasting on our part as if we've made ourselves to differ because we haven't. And the conclusion of the matter is stated in verse 26. And so all Israel shall be saved. Now, not all Israel, not all Jews head for head, but all the Jews according to the grace of election. And then not only all the elect Jews, but now as verse 32 says, referring to the Gentiles God hath concluded them all in unbelief, generally of the, of the nation of the Jews, that he might have mercy upon all. Which simply means that the Jewish nation as a whole, in the way of rejecting the gospel, God now sends the gospel to the Gentiles. And the great mercy of God is shown to the Gentile now let's stop right there and let's pause and consider that because this is the immediate occasion that gives Paul 
to extol the riches of God. That God determined throughout the course of the Old Testament to entrust the gospel to Abraham and to his seed, but that in the course of time it becomes clear that Abraham's physical seed doesn't want that gospel and corrupts that gospel and kills the prophets even that God has sent. And God brings that gospel to the Gentiles. That's amazing. Paul gives praise to God for that. But that's not the, that's not the, the heart of the praise of the Apostle Paul. That's astounding all by itself. But what is even more astounding is that even in the Old Testament, God never changed his mind. God never reacted to the Jews of old and said, I wanted you to believe the gospel, but you never did. And because you don't believe in me, I have to resort to a different plan. The plan will be the gospel going to the Gentiles. No, not that. But always, there was that remnant, always that remnant according to the election of grace. Among the Jews, yes, and now even in the New Testament, among the Gentiles. And that God always remains faithful to his word of truth. And that God always accomplishes his good pleasure through the Lord Jesus Christ. But that God would see fit now to cause that gospel go forth to the Gentile nations and that God would take us and our generations, our, those of us in covenant generations and our parents and our great-grandparents and taking us who are wild olive branches by nature and grafting us into the olive tree, which is Jesus Christ, that we might partake of the root and the fatness thereof. Verse 17. And I say that's amazing for you and for me. That is a reason for deep humility on our part. That God would use the rejection of the gospel by the Jews and now bring that same gospel to those who are not of the physical lineage of Abraham, and that he, we might be the objects of his grace and of his mercy. These are the ways of God, so high, so full of wisdom, so full of godly knowledge. And that becomes the occasion now for the Apostle Paul to adore the infinite depths of God. Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Now, in the original Greek, that verse reads a bit different. Instead of that word riches being a kind of adjective that would describe wisdom and knowledge, but instead what we have are, are three distinct Things, so that we may rightly read the verse this way. Oh, the depth of the riches and of the wisdom 
and of the knowledge of God. Those three things. And these three things mentioned then correspond with what we have in verses 34 and 35. Because God has a depth of riches, verse 35 states, who hath first given to him. Because God has a depth of wisdom, verse 34 states, who hath been his counselor. And because God has a depth of knowledge, verse 34 states, for who hath known Mind of the Lord. And let's examine those three, those three things. In the first place, the depth of the riches of God. What are those riches? The riches of God. Well, it's true that the, the riches of God refer to all things belonging to God. All things of this present creation, God created, he's the sovereign, he owns them, and yes, from that sense, he is rich, but even consider that before creation, from all eternity, when there was none of this present creation, God was still rich, rich in his own being, so that the riches of God are centrally those spiritual truths concerning himself and his attributes, that God is a God of grace, a God of love, of mercy, of compassion, a God of righteousness, a God who is faithful to his word. All those attributes that belong to Jehovah God, our God is rich. And now there are there is a, a, a depth, a depth to those riches. To use an illustration, if you've ever been on a lake, if you've ever been on a deep lake, maybe even the ocean, and you think to yourself, as you're floating along in that boat or in that ship, that, that this lake is very deep, and that there are fish swimming down there, and that there are currents that flow and and I don't know the half of what's going on down there. And though the water might be ever so clear that you can see a good ways down, and yet you know there is so much down there that is, that is beyond you. There's a depth to that water. Well, that helps us to understand that the depth of the riches of God. Now we know and we understand the depth of these riches insofar as God reveals himself to us, gives himself to us so that we can know him with a true knowledge and that we can know Jesus Christ whom he has sent and yet there is in God a depth to these riches, a, a profound and deep and reverberating depth to who God is riches that belong to him that we as puny creatures simply don't know. And now having contemplated the depth of the riches of God, the Apostle Paul says in verse 35, or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again. 
And the idea is because God is so rich in himself, can we give him something? Can we give him something that, that he doesn't already have? Can we somehow add to the riches of God? To use a, a, a simple illustration, you think of a man who owns a business with many employees who pays him employees very handsome salary and at the end of the year gives them thousands of dollars in bonus. And then to think if one of those employees would give the owner a $5 gift card and to say, now the owner owes me. I've added to his riches. There's something that he owes me in return. You say, no, no, no. It doesn't work that way. That's not the way it goes. Well, neither does that apply with respect to God. God owns all things. He is rich in himself, and he is the creator. He is the sustainer of heaven and of earth. And we can never come to God and say, look at what I've done for you. Now give me something in return. But always our approach is to come to our Heavenly Father with empty hands as spiritually destitute beggars, begging to be filled, begging for grace and for mercy. Oh, the depth riches of God. And then further, the depth of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. Let's take that second one first, the knowledge of God. That refers to the fact that God knows perfectly all things. The knowledge of God, that everything that takes place in time and in history is in his mind eternally. You think, of, you think of Adam in the garden before the fall. Think of that, that knowledge that Adam had. So that when all the animals came before him to be named, Adam had this, this insight and this awareness, and he knew perfectly how to name the animals and named them appropriately. He knew each creature. He gave it its, its name. Well, well, that's now becomes a weak creaturely reflection of the knowledge of God. God knows himself exhaustively, but then God also knows all things. And this has reference to the eternal plan and counsel of God. God knows all things, not in the sense of foreknowledge, as if he can simply look forward in the future and see what men will do and see what things will happen, and that in that sense God says, well, yeah, I know, I know what's going to happen, no. But before God created the heavens and the earth, in his knowledge, he planned out everything. This is the counsel of God. This is the will of God. More particularly, the will of God's decree, the will of God's counsel. Everything that God knows with respect to this present creation is in his will and in his counsel. And when that will and counsel takes place, 
in time and in history, what that simply is is the unfolding of the knowledge of God with respect to all things. It's the knowledge of God. The wisdom of God is closely related to his knowledge because God knows all things, God knows exactly what to do. God knows the best way to bring all glory to his name. That's the wisdom of God. God in his wisdom so orders and plans all things that all things redound to the glory of God. And all things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. And there's a depth to the wisdom of God here that we as creatures cannot grasp, but we believe it by faith. We're not able to see it with the eye of the body, but God by the Spirit gives us that faith to grab hold to it. To believe that all things are so interconnected, that all things in time and history are so related to one another as to serve the purpose of God. Which means that things are not random. Things do not take place by chance, by fortune, or by fate. But God governs and controls all things with a view to the Lord Jesus Christ, his coming in the flesh, and now that all things would serve the purpose of his second coming. And so God, depths of knowledge, depths of wisdom in all that he knows and all that he accomplishes. And now the Apostle Paul, standing before that knowledge and wisdom of God, declares in verse 34, For who hath known the mind of the Lord? That corresponds to the knowledge of God. Or who hath been his counselor? Corresponding to the wisdom of God. And those are rhetorical questions. Because the answer is obvious. The answer is none. No one. No one can attain the knowledge of God as if to say, I know God's mind, and no one can say, in my wisdom, I counseled God as to how things ought to be and advised God on what to do. No, but God is God. He is who he is all by himself, and there is this depth to the riches of God, a depth to the wisdom of God, this depth to the knowledge of God that we as humans can't attain. And all we can do is together with the Apostle Paul is to cry out, oh, the depth of the riches and of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding. When Paul adores and praises Jehovah God because of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, then Paul is at the very same time praising 
adoring and worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Because apart from Jesus Christ, God, there would be no riches in God, no wisdom of God, no knowledge of God. But Jesus Christ, the fullness of the riches of God and of the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God, that's the declaration of Scripture, Jesus Christ is rich as the very Son of God, true God of true God, and all the divine attributes that we spoke of earlier, of God, of Jehovah, being faithful, being merciful and compassionate and, 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 and gracious to his people, then all of that applies to Jesus Christ as well. He is rich as the true God, as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus also is the wisdom of God. Proverbs chapter 8. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 24. Christ who is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and, and redemptions and sanctification. And so it pleases God to bring glory to himself through Jesus Christ, through his work on the cross and through the preaching of the cross down through the ages. Spirit of God goes out and gathers his elect sheep. Jesus Christ is the knowledge of God. Matthew 11, verse 27. No man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. So that Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, he knows. He knows the Father perfectly. And to think that it pleases the Son to reveal the Father unto us so that we too may know Jesus and that we may know our Heavenly Father. And so the Apostle, in adoring the riches of God, is simply extolling Jesus Christ as he in whom all of the riches Now the text goes on to give the divine reason. It gives the reason particularly in answer to the question, why are his judgments unsearchable and his ways past finding out? Why hath none known the mind of God or counseled him or given anything to him? And the answer there Verse 36, for of him and through him and to him are all things. And now take special note that these, that those three things mentioned earlier in verse 33 now correspond to these three phrases in verse 36. Because there is in God a depth of riches, then that means that all things are of him or even out of him. 
because there is in God a depth of wisdom, all things are to him. And because there is in God a depth of knowledge, all things are through him. Let's expand on those. That all things are of him, or literally out of him, means that God is the source of all things. God is the source of all things. Now that's easy to confess regarding the pleasant moments in life, regarding the things that we like, the comfortable moments. Those things come from God and find their source in him. But the bad things, some might say, but the bad things, they, they don't come from God. They come from the devil. But then that raises an important question. Do the all things that are out of God include sin and evil, the devil and his wicked host? And all of the things that we regard as bad in life? And if so, doesn't that make God responsible for them? The answer is that God is indeed the source of all things. But not in the sense that there is any evil in God. Not in the sense that, that there is any type of unjustness, that God is the author of sin and in wickedness, and therefore we can point the finger at him and accuse him of evil. No, there's no evil in God. God isn't the author of sin. But nonetheless, all things find their source in God from this point of view, that God decreed it, God even decreed sin, decreeing it in such a way that when men sin, they are responsible for that sin, and that God hates that sin and detests that sin. So all things are indeed of him, out of him, even evil, even sin. Now, that doesn't detract from the power of God, but quite the contrary, that magnifies the power and sovereignty of God because he's in control of all things. All things are of him. And then next, all things, verse 36, are through him. Through him refers to the power of God in creating all things creating all things by the word of his power. Through him refers to his providential power, upholding and governing all things by his word and power. Through him means that it pleases God to execute his eternal counsel through none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. All things happen, therefore, through Jesus Christ and through his sovereign control and his sovereign direction. And then all things, verse 36, are to him. Remember, this corresponds to the wisdom of God, so that God in the depths of his wisdom has so 
arranged everything in this world so that it redounds to the glory of God. All things are to him, which means God makes everything, without exception, serve his purpose of him and through him and to him are all things. But now that begs the question, for of him and through him and to him are all things? Someone might say, well, yeah, I can see how most things are of him, to him, and through him, but all things? And the answer of the child of God, the answer of faith is yes. Absolutely everything. And beloved, this is our comfort. Our comfort is not that Jehovah God is in control of most things, that he is able to govern and direct many things to the glory of his name and to the welfare of his church. But our comfort is that God is sovereign over all things so that even the difficulties that the children of God, that you and I have in our hearts, that those too are included. And what is that? What is that that's burdening you at the moment, those times in life when family and friends feel few and far between, the current strife and heartache that you go through in your own family, whether it be those times of grief and loneliness, whether it be those tears that you shed at the loss of a loved one who has died recently, and we've all shed those tears loss of a loved one who has been taken to glory some time ago, the text says all things, all things are of him and to him and through him without any exception, even sin, even wickedness, yes, so that even the greatest sin committed in the history of the world, the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. And the apostles having been released from prison, they praise God in prayer and say in Acts chapter 4 that Herod and Pontius Pilate and all the peoples were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And that was a horrible sin, to take the Son of God in the flesh and to say, you are a sinner. You deserve to die the death of the cross. But nonetheless, that was all according to the sovereign purpose of God. And God determining that by the death of the Son of God, the, the, the church shall be saved. And that our sins should be covered. 
And so, beloved, don't forget that. All things, all things are of him and to him and through him. Your present misery and distress, even the ungodly wicked world, Everything that takes place in time and history, so much so that even Philippians 1 says that at the end of time, even the wicked and the ungodly will be compelled to bend the knee and to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They will confess that, not to their own salvation, but they will be forced to admit that which they would not confess in this life, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Oh, the depths of the wisdom and of the riches and of the knowledge of God, for all things are of him and through him and to him. And what profound praise then finally the Apostle Paul offers to God. The only explanation of this bursting forth of this doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God that the Apostle Paul will say at the end of verse 36, to whom be glory forever. Because that's what the knowledge of God does in us when God gives us this knowledge. Knowing that God infallibly accomplishes his good pleasure in all things then that leads you and me, leads the child of God to praise and worship Jehovah God, the Almighty, the Sovereign. Now we are careful here. There is a word of warning. The knowledge that we have that all things are of him and through him and to him, the fact that God accomplishes his good pleasure in everything, that blessed, glorious knowledge does not lead the child of God to say, well then, I suppose that I can do as I please because God will see to it that everything will turn out all right. Not at all. Wrath of God comes down on that person who abuses the doctrine of God's sovereignty for his own carnal purposes. Well, what does that look like in life when somebody might be of that mind? It, it looks something like this. If a person might say, well, if God plans that I would die in a car accident, doesn't matter how fast I go down the road, 85, 95, over 100. That's the way that God has determined that I die. Well, I suppose I can drive as recklessly as I want on the road. God's will be done. Or if somebody might say, well, if God determines that I would even die of a heart attack, well, then I don't, I don't need to take care of my body. I don't need to watch what I eat because after all, all things are of him and through him and to him. People of God, do you see the, the, the wickedness in that perverted, distorted type of thinking? To take the beautiful, glorious doctrine of the sovereignty of God 
and now to use it for my own carnal purposes. Let that never be true of you and of me. Because God is no fool. God will not be mocked. And the wrath of God comes down on that person who abuses the doctrine of God's sovereignty for his own carnal purposes and uses God's sovereignty as an occasion to sin. But the proper response of the child of God is this. All praise and all glory to my God and my Savior. God who has saved me when I was no better than anybody else. The God whose purposes are always accomplished. The God who works all things for his glory and for my salvation. So what we have here in Romans, and at the end of it, is a marvelously deep and profound passage type of passage that rattles us to the core of our being in praise and thanksgiving. Say it with me and let this be your meditation now and always. Oh, the depth of the riches and of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we adore thee. We bend the knee to thee, the sovereign of heaven and of earth, who so holds all things in thy hand, that without thy will, not so much as a hair can fall from our head, and not a creature can move. We are thankful that we are in the hand of almighty sovereign God. We are thankful that thou hast revealed thyself to us so that we may know thee, we may know Jesus Christ and knowing thee is life eternal and that we may know that all things are governed by thee. Give us faith. Give us a richer and deeper faith that we may live by faith and that we would not walk with the eye of the body but with the eye of faith and that we may see that all things are hurtling towards the second coming of Jesus Christ and we long for that day our Savior will come again. Forgive our sins and pardon our iniquities. Bless us in this Sabbath day and in the remaining hours thereof that we may keep it holy to the glory of thy name. In Jesus' name we pray.